0: This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, November 8th, 2022. I'm Caleb Brown. Should members of the U.S. Supreme Court be term or time limited? Akhil Reed Amar is the Sterling Professor of Law and Political Science at Yale University. He spoke on behalf of the idea of limiting the time that justices may serve. Professor Amar spoke at the Cato Institute's Constitution Day event. This is a portion of his full remarks. In a bipartisan op-ed, published in the Washington Post on August 9, 2002, Stephen G. Calabresi, the co-founder and co-chair of the Federal Society, and I floated the idea that each justice should do 18 years of full and active service on the court and should thereafter have a different portfolio of judicial responsibilities. The bipartisan co-authorship, of this 2002 op-ed was purposeful. The 18-year idea was then and remains today neither left nor right, neither blue nor red. I was then and remain today a mainstream Democrat, and Steve was then and remains today a mainstream Republican. For example, in 2000, I voted for Al Gore, whereas Steve voted for George W. Bush. In 2016, I voted for Hillary Clinton, Steve for Donald Trump. When I first publicly embraced the 18-year idea, a Republican sat in the White House, Republicans controlled the House, and the Senate was almost evenly divided. Today, the partisan alignment is almost exactly the opposite. A Democrat sits in the White House, Democrats control the House, and the Senate is almost evenly divided. Yet I still consider the 18-year idea a good one. Indeed, in the two decades since I began mulling the 18-year idea, I've become even more persuaded that the root idea is a good one. I've over time tweaked and modified various details of my envisioned reform, but I remain convinced that some version of the 18-year idea can and should be embraced by Congress in a simple statute. Ideally, the statute should itself be bipartisan drawing support from leaders of both parties, and featuring a proper phase in that respects the settled expectations of the current justices and avoids any appearance of a partisan grab reminiscent of the Midnight Judges Act of 1801. At the end of this lecture, I shall share with you the nuts and bolts of my proposed statute. detailing how my 18-year idea might best be implemented in a fashion that I believe would be an entirely constitutional exercise of congressional power to structure the court pursuant to Congress's Explicit power under the Article One Necessary and Proper Clause. And just as an aside, I'm envisioning, in effect, a, fur- a purely prospective phase-in. So, temporarily, the number of justices will increase until it settles um, back down. So, this is emphatically not a throw clearance from the train proposal to accelerate and um, force the retirement of, of the most senior justices. That's just an aside. Um, you'll hear the details. That clause, that is the necessary and proper clause, of course, vests Congress with authority to pass proper laws implementing powers vested by the Constitution in, quote, the government of the United States or in any department or officer thereof, unquote. Ever since the founding, Congress has used this clause to properly prescribe the size and shape of various executive departments, the powers and duties of various executive officers, the size, shape, and responsibility of the Supreme Court, the powers and duties of Supreme Court members both in active service and after voluntary retirement from active service, um, uh, 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 both in active service and after voluntary retirement from active service, the rules of procedure and evidence operative in the Supreme Court, the timing of Supreme Court uh, sittings, and myriad other matters of similar scope. In perfect harmony with this well-settled pattern of congressional legislation, Congress should in the near future properly prescribe a lifetime duty roster for Supreme Court justices. A quick note on terminology. My specific 18-year idea and its close cousins, that is, variations of this idea that have been embraced in recent years by a wide range of legal scholars across the political spectrum, have often been described as proposals for term limits for justices. Indeed, I myself have frequently used this phraseology and may well lapse into this locution in informal future conversations. Nevertheless, my proposal is strictly speaking not a limit on the official term of any given justice. Each justice is entitled under the Constitution to serve a life term in the federal judiciary, to serve during good behavior, to use a more technical formulation, and I do not propose otherwise. Each justice is entitled to be paid for life slash good behavior, and I do not propose otherwise. Each justice is allowed to claim the official title of Supreme Court justice for life slash good behavior, and I do not propose otherwise. I simply propose that we modify the manner in which each justice serves on the court for life slash good behavior. Put differently, my proposal merely modifies, and in a purely prospective way, the duty roster accompanying the official office of Supreme Court Justice. Indeed, given that the gist of my plan is purely prospective, it is in effect merely a mechanism by which future justices Bindingly announce their retirements long in advance, not say 18 weeks in advance, a la Stephen Breyer, but 18 years in advance in the very process of joining the court. You just heard in the last panel, questions about the confirmation hearings. And in effect, going forward, in the confirmation hearing itself, people would commit to and accept the idea that they'll serve for 18 years and then transition to a slightly different set of Supreme Court responsibilities. Under my proposed federal statute, each justice in the process of being commissioned would agree that he or she will be a justice in active service, a member of the court's front bench, so to speak, with the same basic responsibilities as a typical justice in the system today for 18 years. Thereafter, each justice would serve in a relaxed service capacity with a different set of daily Supreme Court responsibilities, including, but not limited to, the responsibilities of current retired justices under 28 U.S.C. section 294. A relaxed service justice, whom we might also call an emeritus justice, would not routinely sit with active service justices on bank, but would be available to do so in cases where the court is short staffed, uh, when because of death or illness or resignation or accusal or the like, nine active service justices are not available for service. We just heard about, for example, Justice Katanji Brown Jackson's likely recusal in the Harvard case. Um, um, An emeritus justice would devote most of her daily attention to court-related administrative, ceremonial, education, public relations, circuit writing, and docket management functions, um, following a more detailed set of rules to be promulgated and from time to time revised by the active service justices themselves. Strictly speaking, perhaps we uh, we should call my idea not term limits, but time rules. In its ultimate constitutional logic, my proposal is broadly analogous to a hypothetical statute providing that no justice should, no justice should speak for more than say, five minutes in any hour-long oral argument. This hypothetical oral argument law is also best understood as a t- not as a term limit, but as a time rule. And here I think in particular Justice Scalia, um, in the um, so-called um, uh, line-item veto case, uh, Clinton versus City of New York, where he, in dissent, said, actually, technically it's not really a line-item veto, and the justices were be- just being, quote, faked out by the label. And so when people hear term limits, they immediately say, well, that's unconstitutional, but it's really you know, the-, the label that's misleading, so maybe we should call them time rules rather than term limits. 18 arguments. In the April 28th, 2021 episode of my free weekly podcast with Dr. Andrew Lipka, America's Constitution, I listed 18 different reasons supporting my particular version of the idea of 18 years of active court service, followed by a lifetime of relaxed court service. So just as an aside, it's free on this podcast. You can find it all sorts of places. Just Google Akilamar Podcast. Um, it's available on a website that I have that also has all sorts of free materials uploaded Um um, links to articles and um, and books and and all sorts of other stuff. There are about ninety episodes in all now, um, so you can binge listen if you like. I only we it took us a long time, my wife and I, to finally get the kids out of the house, and you know, into, and so we're discovering only recently like amazing things like The Crown, and so we you know going back and, and binge listening to all sorts of past binge watching all sorts of past episodes, um, and I do recommend The Crown. It puts in context context um, some of the stuff that's happening now with with Charles and Camilla. But but if you listen to it, again, it's free, it's weekly, and you like it, you can go all the way back 90 episodes uh, once a week, about an hour and a half um, an episode. Here in brief were my 18 arguments for 18 years. One, the status quo of lifetime active service when combined with a partisan arms race encourages each of our two major political parties to appoint unduly young and unseasoned jurists to the court in the hopes of entrenching the party vision on the court for as many years as possible. So each one wants to go younger and younger. Two, at the other end of the life cycle, the status quo allows for full service of justices who are too old, whose arteries have literally hardened and who are not at their prime. Historically, most justices have not done their best work in their superannuated years. There are, of course, exceptions. You know, my friends, of course, I'm gonna say, oh, you're the exception. Um, but just on average, uh, that's the, the, the average. Three, so we have a problem uh, with too young and too old today. Three, the current system creates the possibility of too long a time lag between initial appointment and current judgment. The most senior active justices may be wildly out of touch with the nation's evolving mood because these justices were appointed long ago, even if they're still relatively young and spry and their arteries have not hardened. This time lag is particularly problematic for younger Americans who are not even voters when many current justices were selected. Many of America's younger generation lack a close emotional connection to the court, and part perhaps, and perhaps because of the long time lag. Um, And I see this in my classes with my students, undergrads and law students. The reform statute caps this time lag at 18 years for the court's most important function, decision-making in en banc cases. Four, the current system enables justices to strategically and politically time their resignations. This is a less attractive model of judicial independence. Currently, some justices act politically when they time their exits. Five. 18 is a magic number, enabling regular um, and steady replacement a la the Senate. The Senate staggered, staggered, staggered replenishment system adds a new third every two years. The 18-year active service plan adds a new ninth every two years. Six. 18 is a magic number in a second and distinct way. Appointment power is regularized and smoothed across the presidencies and across quadrennial presidential elections. Each president can count on two appointments, and this smoothing makes replenishment less arbitrary, random, and capricious. Again, on the model of Senate replenishment. Relatedly, Regular replenishment of the front bench makes it easier for voters to think about the court's future every presidential election without awkward and indeed ghoulish speculation about the life expectancies and health prognoses of individual sitting justices. I feel this as a commentator when they say, when you, you heard it from, from um, uh, Amy Howe, uh, oh, because we had four pretty recently, you know, we're less likely to get an appointment anytime soon. She's implicitly trading on all sorts of actuaries Assumptions about the age of the current justices and who's going to get cancer next, and you know, ooh, because you can't talk about that openly, so you either don't talk about it at all, or you know, it, you have these euphemisms, and and now we can openly say, well, in the next presidential term, the fa- seat three and seat seven are going to come up for um, replenishment, and and that's just we can have a more grown up democratic conversation without this awkward ghoulish speculation. Eight. Shortened terms of active service will reduce the stakes and the temperature of currently overheated court confirmation battles. So if it's about 40 years on the court, people are gonna fight more fiercely than if it's about only 18. Nine, shortened terms of active service will increase judicial humility. 10, replenishment every odd year Regularizes appointments within each presidential term, with half of the active service justices chosen pre midterm and half post midterm. Um, so I'm imagining actually appointments in years one and three in a typical presidential term. The opening up of vacancies in odd years further reduces the political temperature of court confirmation battles by staging these battles in non-election years. That's the the least superheated times you're going to have in our cycle. Eleven, an 18-year cap on active service brings the U.S. Supreme Court model into closer alignment with the most admirable state Supreme Court systems almost none of which features active service for life. The federal government can and should learn from the lessons of states, the proverbial laboratories of American democratic experimentation. This is a Brandeisian point, you see. 12, ditto on the comparative international front. Almost no other modern democracy in the world has a lifetime model of active service for its apex court. America as a whole can learn from the experiences of the world's other notable democracies. And here I'm not taking a position on Supreme Court cases borrowing from, from other societies. I'm saying that when we're passing laws or thinking about amendments, we as a society can, can look to see what Italy, France, India, Germany, um, uh, England, Israel, and so on um, do. 13, unlike current reform proposals to pack the court, the 18-year proposal is not partisan and is unlikely to spiral out of control when party control shifts in Washington, D.C. at some future point. Um, so I think, of course, core packing, if we tried to do it today, the Dems add six, and then when the Republicans are in control, they add 16, and then the Dems add 26, and, um, so, um, and this won't happen. In fact, 18 will solidify because of its magic relationship to nine, the current number nine, and I actually like that. Now, I dropped a footnote here. This, this is all from my podcast, and here's the footnote. On reflection, this podcast point was a bit of a cheat. I did not identify an improvement on the status quo, which each of these is trying to say, 18 arguments that were better than the status quo, but merely an advantage over another widely discussed approach to court reform, namely court packing. But here's a true improvement, which the podcast did not count. As a separate virtue, so I'm taking one off the list and adding a new one to the list because you know I like the idea of 18 um, arguments for 18 years. The 18-year proposal minimizes the likelihood of a short-staffed, evenly divided court. Whenever one of the whenever one of the active nine justices is unavailable, a reduced-service emeritus justice can easily pinch it. And we don't have that now with Katanji Brown Jackson or with Justice Scalia's um, death and non-replacement for um, many months, really um, almost a year. So so that's a distinct virtue. You're always gonna have nine. You're gonna have a a pinch hitter on deck. Um, 14, the 18-year proposal not only eliminates the occasional or regular reality of politically-timed retirements, It eliminates the public perception of politics and judicial retirements, a perception that may wrongly exist when Justice X in fact retires nowadays for entirely personal reasons, but a perception that adds to the current public cynicism about the court. So we don't know why Justice Kennedy stepped down when he did. Maybe he had all sorts of good personal reasons for it, Why should he have to tell us all of that? And but there's a perception. Oh, he did it because he's a Republican and this is on Trump's watch, or what have you. So it's not just about the reality of politically timed um, resignations, it's about the perception of politics um, in the resignation decision. 15. Under the current, under the 18-year plan, every active justice is slated to serve as chief justice in his, her last two years of active service. This too evens out power across presidents and eliminates the current lumpiness, giving some presidents, for purely accidental reasons, more power than others to pick the court's chief. Um, So I'm imagining you serve for 16 years as uh, an associate and your last two, um, you're the chief, which is how a lot of um, circuits sort of um, do it, They, they, they rotate seniority. Um, 16, rotation of uh, of of the chief justiceship equalizes power within the court. Relatedly, associate justices will not have incentives to pander to the president in the hopes of one day being nominated by a president, of course, to become chief justice. Even if associate justices never in fact pander, the mere public perception that some justices might well be auditioning to be chief is undesirable. 17. Chief justices will be those who clearly understand the court, having typically served on the active bench for the previous 16 years, and having received, one would expect, special training by their predecessor chief justice. So actually, first 14, you're an associate, next two, you're sort of a vice chief, and you're gonna, you know, uh, and then your last two, you you're chief, and that seems actually kind of sensible, which is how lots of apex courts do it, lots of circuit courts do it. 18, circuit duty of emeritus justices could help reconnect the Supreme Court with lawyers and judges in the hinterlands. A nice echo of the original vision of the court as implemented by the Judiciary Act of 1789. So those are the 18 reasons. And by the way, I just kind of came up with them in the conversation talking with Andy Lipka. You can listen to the podcast episode, but basically every week, he's he's a retired ophthalmologist. But he's a smart guy, and he asks me questions, and we just talk. He represents sort of the general audience. So so I hope you give the podcast a a chance, because actually that's where I came up. I thought I might have five or six arguments, but we just started talking, and, and I was able to get up to 18. Okay, here's the last section. But is it constitutional? At the end of this lecture, I'll set forth a more detailed description of my proposed reform package. The details will doubtless prompt specific questions that merit further conversation, so be thinking what what you you want to ask. For now, let me briefly explain why this proposal is, in my view, easily and obviously constitutional, able to be effectuated by a simple congressional statute and not requiring a constitutional amendment of any sort. As mentioned earlier, the Constitution expressly and purposefully thus Congress with broad power to legislate rules structuring the executive and judicial departments. This power is, of course, not unlimited. Congressional legislation must be proper, and I think people in this room really care a lot about constitutional propriety, and I'm with you all. It must comport with the Constitution's letter and spirit, including the specific letter and spirit of Articles 2 and 3. Consider, for example, two hypothetical congressional laws that, in my view, would be constitutionally improper. So I'm going to give you an example of what, what would be wrong and why. First, imagine a congressional statute purporting to dictate to the court how to construe a particular constitutional provision or how to construe the Constitution in general. Such a law would violate the court's power to say what the law is, to quote Marbury versus Madison, the power, that is, of the court to determine for itself, in its own independent judgment, what the Constitution, in fact, means. True, Congress has broad power to dictate to the court how to construe a particular federal statute and how to construe federal statutes generally. But this power is largely derivative of the power to enact federal laws themselves. If if a law can be written broadly, how is this different from a law written in rather more ambiguous language, but featuring a clause telling the court to, quote, construe this law broadly? Still, the power of Congress to dictate to the court rules of statutory construction, whether local or global, is not infinite the court may at times read the Constitution itself to require that certain things must be said very clearly and expressly by Congress via a super clear statement. If, con- if the court believes that the Constitution itself requires or invites such a clear statement rule, Congress does not have carte blanche to direct the court to ignore its own constitutional beliefs in deciding the cases that come before it. More generally, Congress surely lacks carte blanche to tell the court how to construe the Constitution either locally or globally. Congress itself did not create the Constitution, cannot change the Constitution at will by ordinary legislation, and is not the sole master of constitutional meaning. The Congress is of course free, and indeed obliged to construe the Constitution for itself in many situations, and Congress is also free to express its understanding of constitutional meaning. The court may well choose to give weight to Congress's good faith judgment of constitutional meaning, but Congress cannot, by law, require the court to follow Congress's interpretation of, con- interpretation of Constitutional meaning. This basic principle, deducible from the Constitution's structure, has been reinforced by important rulings of the court itself, most notably the 1871 case of United States versus Klein. In that case, the justices correctly held that Congress lacked power to dictate to the court the meaning and scope of the president's pardon power under Article II. So that's one example. And I gave that in part because you're hearing all sorts of, I think, crazy reform suggestions by other folks. And I'm saying, here are examples of things that, oh, you can't do by mere statute. And you shouldn't do by constitutional amendment, in fact. Second, imagine a congressional statute purporting to restructure the court's decision-making by forbidding the court to strike down federal legislation unless the court vote is at least six to three. There are suggestions like this out there in the land, and, and we've seen them actually over the course of American history. Any statute, and I think they're bad, any statute that gave a jurist brandishing a mere constitu- a mere congressional law a weightier vote than a dueling jurist wielding the Constitution would improperly invert the clear prioritization of legal norms established by the Article VI Supremacy Clause, which of course privileges the Constitution over a mere congressional statute. Put differently, thanks to the letter and spirit of the Supremacy Clause, Congress may pass no law giving any judge who sides against a constitutional claim more weight than a judge who sides with a constitutional claim. And if a law may permissibly require six out of nine Supreme Court votes to disregard a congressional statute as unconstitutional, why not seven, or eight, or even nine out of nine? Given broad congressional power to resize the court, why couldn't Congress require that every congressional law be strictly followed no matter how constitutionally outrageous unless 99 out of 99 justices on a packed court unanimously agreed that a given congressional law was flagrantly unconstitutional? At that point, indeed well before that point, judicial review itself would have effectively been eliminated in open defiance of Articles 3 and 6, the Federalist Number 78, Marbury v. Madison, and centuries of constitutional law built on this constitutional bedrock. So in case you missed it, that's why I really don't agree with my friend and colleague Samuel Moyne, um, who writes stuff like this, and and many of my students who are writing stuff like this. But my proposed 18-year time rule is entirely different from improper laws of the sort I've just described. The proposal is deeply respectful of the constitutional principle of judicial independence. Indeed, because this proposal would discourage mature justices from timing their resignations in political or partisan ways, it would instantiate a superior version of independence compared to the status quo. Unlike the law in Klein, which interfered with powers directly and explicitly vested by the Constitution itself in the office of the president, that was a case about the pardon power, My proposal does no violence to the office of Supreme Court Justice as outlined in the Constitution. The Constitution vests no particular power in any individual judge or justice to hear this case or that one, apart from the power of the Chief Justice to preside at presidential impeachments. My proposal in no way intrudes upon that power, even though it does revise the process by which a given jurist becomes the nation's Chief Justice. My proposal does not retroactively deprive any current member of the court of any vested privilege, and its structure provides the same rules for presence of both parties going forward. Under my proposal, every president henceforth will nominate a new justice in year one and year three of every presidential term. In addition, the law could provide, in veil of ignorance fashion, that the new system will not go into effect until after the next presidential election, an election that, at present, is a toss-up, in the opinion of our best political prognosticators. So it, this is not a partisan scheme. You to do it behind a pure, pure perspective veil of ignorance, fine by me. In essence, the 18-year time limit would simply be a proper and prospective law structuring and shaping the Supreme Court and the Office of Supreme Court Justice, constitutionally indistinguishable from a vast number of earlier and current laws shaping and structuring the Supreme Court, lower federal courts, executive departments, and various Article II and Article Three offices. For example, and I'm gonna give you about four or five different analogies you see to what this plan is, and then I'll read you the plan. For example, one, Beginning in 1789 in legislation signed by George Washington himself, Congress has prescribed and over the ensuing years has from time to time modified the number of justices the court's overall jurisdiction and the duty rosters of various executive and judicial officers how is the envisioned duty roster at the heart of my 18 year plan proposed 18 year proposal any different as a matter of constitutional principle N- Second, notably, the first Congress prescribed when, where, and how the justices should sit on banc, including a rule prescribing that any four of the court's initial six members would compose a proper quorum for the court's on banc decision. How is it any different in today, if today's Congress says the court's proper on banc composition as a rule involves its pre-emeritus justices as distinct from its emeritus justices? Congress likewise, in its earliest statute on the judiciary, the landmark Judiciary Act of 1789, prescribed that the proper duty of a Supreme Court justice was to ride circuit at certain times. Although some modern scholars have raised technical questions about the constitutional propriety of circuit writing, this was an enormous and defining feature of the celebrated Judiciary Act of 1789, enacted by the first Congress, which contained many leading framers and ratifiers of the Constitution, and was signed into law by none other than George Washington. Every early justice, in fact, rode circuit. None openly resisted circuit writing on the grounds that this element of the job was unconstitutional. Circuit writing built squarely on early pra- earlier practices and traditions in various states and colonies, and in Britain, traditions of assize courts and Nisi Prius, in which jurists of a uh, legal regime's highest court sat individually or in smaller groups in courts across the countryside, bringing justice to every man's door. If this system combining local sit- sittings and centralized en bancs was good enough for George Washington and James Madison in John Marshall and Joseph's story, it should be good enough for us. Modern scholars who are squeamish on this point should yield to the great weight of early liquidation and utterly settled practice. If Congress could say, if the first Congress could say that a given justice must sit on bank in month X and ride circuit in month Y, why cannot today's Supreme Court, uh, today's Congress, say that a given justice must sit on banc in years one to eighteen and ride circuit thereafter? In laws stretching back to the Washington presidency, Congress has likewise prescribed various rules of evidence and procedure to be followed by the Supreme Court and other federal courts. Surely, the eighteen-year time rule can be understood as structuring the procedure of the court. That is its basic manner of proceeding and conducting itself, as distinct from its substantive pronouncements of the legal rights and duties of proper litigants who come before the court. If all these other procedural statutes are constitutionally kosher, how is our envisioned term limits/time rule statute decisively different? There is virtually no doubt that Congress could legislate proper rules for Supreme Court ethics including rules specifying situations requiring recusal. How is a rule prescribing on banc recusal in general for any jurist who's already heard um, um, her fair share of on banc cases any different from all sorts of other recusal rules that Congress might properly adopt? Why cannot a rule limiting pre-emeritus front bench service to a fixed number of years be justified as a simple judicial ethics regulation discouraging politically timed and partisanship-tinged retirements. My plan also aligns, closely aligns, with the recent and current practice for sitting and retired justices. In the mid-1990s, William Rehnquist sat by designation while also serving as chief. So he sat on a lower federal court while also being chief justice. Since 1937, at least 11 retired justices have sat by designation and in effect have ridden circuit per 28 U.S.C. section 94 to wit. Justices Vander Vanter, Reed, Burton, Clark, Stewart, Powell, Brennan, Marshall, White, O'Connor, and Souter. I don't know what Justice Breyer's plan is, by the way. If modern justices can ride circuit after voluntarily retiring... Why is it any different if the announcement of their voluntary retirement occurs much earlier in the process, namely in the course of joining the court and simultaneously promise to step off 18 years hence? A final point worth reiterating from my April 28, 2021 podcast is that the 18-year reform proposal would bring the U.S. Supreme Court into closer alignment with some of America's most distinguished state court judiciaries featuring long fixed terms of active service. State constitutions, of course, differ from the federal constitution in important ways. Still the wide popularity of state judicial time limits uh, for service is one reassuring factor in support of the basic propriety and common sense of the 18-year proposal. In in its deep design, and unlike several other high-profile reform proposals currently in the air, the 18-year proposal is entirely and self-consciously in keeping with the American way. Akhil Reed Amar is the Sterling Professor of Law and Political Science at Yale University. He spoke at the Cato Institute's Constitution Day event held in September. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast on your podcast platform of choice, and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.